my wonderful listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Glow West podcast, where we talk about sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm delighted to be a part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of podcasts all about politics, culture, society, and sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise as it really does help to keep the mics on, or please pop over to rate and review over on Apple. So today I'm talking about the intersections of kink, therapy, trauma, um, domestic violence, all those kind of things. And of course, pleasure, because pleasure is always at the heart of this podcast. So joining me today to talk about this is a very busy woman who's just released a brand new book. So we're here delighted to chat to her about it. I'm talking to Stephanie Gorlick, and she's a licensed master social worker and a Michigan trained sex therapist. She's over 15 years experience working with survivors of sexual trauma, domestic violence, human trafficking, as well as folks with gender, sexuality and relationship differences. Stephanie is passionate about her work to build bridges between the marginalized and the mainstream. And this work has most recently taken the form of her brand new book, The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. Stephanie, thank you so much for chatting to me today. How are you keeping? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Um, your new book sends, first of all, the title is great, The Leather Couch. As someone who studied psychoanalysis, I'm kind of obsessed with that title. So well done you for having a great one. Thank you so much. <laughs> what, what led you to write the book? I spent the vast majority of my early career working with survivors of domestic and sexual trauma, domestic and sexual violence, uh, human sex worker, I'm sorry, human trafficking survivors, commercial sex workers, really spent a lot, a lot of time on the ugly side of human sexuality, watching sex be weaponized. Um, and I decided that I wanted to be on the other side of that. I wanted to help people have happier, healthier relationships with their bodies, with their partners, with their own sense of self. And in the States, a part of that process is going through an experience called a sexual sexuality attitudes reassessment. It's an experiential thing several hours, sometimes several days, where you're exposed to a lot of different sexuality content and really given an opportunity to focus on what makes you uncomfortable, what makes you excited, what makes you enthusiastic, what do you have questions about, what scares you, all of those things. It's very much an inwardly focused process. So over the course of my SAR, I'm sitting with my colleagues and we're watching videos of people with disabilities working with sexual surrogates in order to increase their ability to experience pleasure. And the room would go, oh, that's so lovely. Oh, that's so brave. We saw interviews of elderly couples in their 70s and 80s talking about how they have adapted their lovemaking in order to stay connected in their senior years. And again, the room is just like, oh, that's so inspiring. I hope that's me when I'm 80. And then we got about an hour, maybe an hour and a half on BDSM and kink and the vibe in the room changed. And it became um, very giggly and very whispery and lots of titters and lots of asides. And it felt surprisingly shaming in an environment that was entirely about normalization. And that didn't sit well with me. And I looked around the room and I thought, you know, I've spent my entire career working to help people who have had sex weaponized against them. The last thing I want is for them to have their own sexuality and their own relationships weaponized against them. And so I realized that it was really an area that even for people that identify as sex positive, even for people that are enthusiastic about the full expression of sex and sexuality, this was still a tension point. And so I started writing. That, that's so, like, everything. It's so frustrating. It's so powerful to, you know, take that experience and, and turn something positive in it. But you're reminding me of, I went to an art festival with um, a whole bunch of psychotherapists and um, like Freudian psychoanalysis, I suppose, which is a very specific type of, of, of therapy. And it was mm. a film festival and we watched a film on um people who fall in love with objects so people who marry buildings and stuff and um you know it's one of my most fascinating areas because I you know it's just there's so much to it but the whole room again was like people were laughing and giggling like you said and making all these snide comments and I just thought if anyone is in this room and dealing with either the exact thing on screen or anything that was a little bit off mainstream they're, they're in this room with therapists who are laughing 
about this and I was just thinking I hope none of these people pass final exams or you know like because there's a lot of harm that can be done you know if, if your therapist isn't you know you finally got up the courage and the guts to go to therapy which most people you know may not even make it to that point and then to be honest with your therapist about your kinks or your sexual desires is a whole other step of like being vulnerable and then the risk of that person laughing about it or minimizing it uh, like it just seems really really frustrating and against what the therapist should be doing exactly the last thing that i want is for somebody that has a healthy, supportive, enjoyable, consensual relationship or way of expressing themselves sexually to have that pathologized for them when it is something that they find beautiful and beneficial. Do you think that is because therapists don't get a lot of training on kinks and fetishes or do they get any training on that area? So I know that as a part of my graduate school process, we had no human sexuality coursework. Um, we never talked about um, kink or BDSM or consensual non-monogamy. It simply wasn't discussed. We had classes in multicultural competency and working with individuals and couples from all sorts of religious and um, ethnic backgrounds and countries of origin and families of origin, but nothing that talked about the ways that these people then form relationships and form families for themselves. So I absolutely think it's a significant learning gap. That, how can you not have training in that area? That's like, like I suppose that's here as well. You know, some we're, there's a lot of similarities there, but even things like doctors don't get the proper training around sex and mm-hmm. No, if you're trained to be a therapist, there might be a high chance you might be a relationship therapist where you're dealing with some sort of sexual issue. It's like, because that's why people get into relationships. Like sex is a big part of it. And it just seems like a shocking gap that training around sex isn't there. I think that people tend to assume, and this is true in the medical field as well, that sex is a specialty area that you only need to learn about sex in medical school if you're planning on being a urologist or an obstetrician gynecologist, uh, and that you only need to learn about sex in social work or counseling or psychology if you're planning on doing sex therapy work or work around sexuality issues. But people don't recognize that sexuality, our own connection to our bodies, and what we crave, what we desire, the relationships that we want to form, those are present in every individual client that we're working with. We don't need to be doing couples work for sex and sexuality to be a factor for our clients. Our clients that are coming in for depression, depression impacts libido. Our clients that are coming in for relationship issues, desire discrepancy and differences in what one partner wants versus the other is huge. And it's baffling to me that as mental health practitioners, we go, you know what, unless you specifically ask me about your body, your body isn't relevant here. Because we think about it in so many other ways. Yeah, that's so frustrating because your sexual wellness is just as important as your mental wellness and your physical wellness. They're all linked, like, what's the word for? Um, Era, oh, I can't, my brain's not working at the moment, but they're irretrievably linked. Uh, it'll come to me but so it's bizarre that you could just separate out that that part of the human experience and just parcel that off and think we won't touch that part because we'll focus on this other part like that's do do we do that in other areas of the human experience none to the extent that we do with sex and sexuality one of my favorite things points of education that I share with my clients and also with colleagues because so often this is minimized, this idea that, um, well, I'm allowed to be bothered by my sex life. I'm allowed to be bothered by my relationship with my body. It's silly that I want somebody to hold my hand or to hit me, whatever it might be. And so I always talk about these experiments that were done in the 50s and 60s that are wildly unethical. We would never be able to do them now. But um, a researcher named Harlow created two um, wire mother figures for baby monkeys. And one was just bare wire with food and the other was wrapped in cloth and it was soft and it was warm, but there was no food there. And they just put the baby monkeys in to see which mother the babies would prefer. And the babies would starve themselves 
in order to have that physical touch, that connection, that softness, that warmth. The, the desire for physical connection is innate and evolutionary, and it baffles me that we try to separate this out and pretend that it doesn't matter. Because it just has such a huge impact, like that attachment theory, like you were saying, it, it just drives people throughout their entire lives. Those first, that first year of your life it can dominate the rest of your life if, if it's not thought about. But I suppose like the, the alarm bell that would go off in my head for, you know, if, if therapists aren't getting trained in that area is if someone is presenting to them as a victim of trauma, say in this case, say domestic violence, mm-hmm. But then they're also into BDSM as well. And the therapist doesn't understand what BDSM is. Where where do they even start with breaking down the difference between the, the consensual BDSM and obviously the non-consensual domestic abuse? And like, it feels like there's a big potential there for a lot of harm to be caused. I think this is one of the areas where we have the opportunity to first let our clients lead us. And to first, especially because I've worked in that setting, I've worked in domestic violence agencies. So asking those open-ended questions, you know, what, you know, you're here because you've been traumatized by your partner. You're here because you have experienced violence that you did not agree to. How is that different in your mind from consensual kink play? What about this experience that brought you to me is different than the experiences that you do enjoy when you are engaging in BDSM? It's not asking our clients to educate us about BDSM because that's not their job. We all get continuing education opportunities. It's on us to teach ourselves. But starting with really gauging where our clients are, what about this experience was traumatic for you versus something that might look to an outsider very similar, but feel very different to you emotionally and physically. And then we build from there. I wonder, does that come from that tendency we have, Trip? many aspects of society to pathologize um bdsm and kinks like so you know to try and figure out the root of it if it's rooted in trauma or if it's just some sort of inner masochism or whatever happens to be rather than just hey i like this this kind of thing whatever happens to be so do you think that 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 tendency to you know demonize bdsm comes into play sometimes Absolutely. It's human nature to want to classify and categorize things in order to understand them. And when somebody enjoys something romantically and especially sexually that we can't wrap our head around, we are going to look for the categories that we do understand and try and sort it into that. So if you're a mental health provider, perhaps the only thing you know about BDSM is that sadism and masochism are in the DSM. And those words are there. So if you have a client coming in and saying, I'm a sadist, well, you're already pathological. I know because the book says so. Things like that. Where it comes into power exchange, consensual giving and taking of authority, that's not something that we can diagnose, but we still want to categorize it. And so we hear power exchange, perhaps not those words, but we see, we hear descriptions of what is power exchange. And we go immediately to power and control because the only real professional lens that we have is the lens of domestic violence and of abuse of power and abuse of control. So it's that it's that innate urge to categorize and sort. But the only categories that we've been given are intrinsically negative ones. I think the problem with that is as well that we still don't even understand fully how domestic violence operates. You know, Mm -hmm. we have ideas, but again, because it's such an insidious form of violence and, you know, people struggle to name it themselves and and then to explain it to others. So sometimes the the inner workings of it sometimes are not fully available, you know, to people outside the experience. So I suppose Mm -hmm. if you're operating from that limited perspective and then you throw in kink and, you know, someone saying, hey, I like to do this weird and wonderful thing, you know, you can see why there might be confusion and, yeah, I suppose misunderstanding maybe on that. So um, is it normal then that the therapist would kind of say, look, this isn't my area, I'll refer you on to someone else or, are the, you know, is the best practice to be honest about it and say, look, this isn't my area, but I can help you with the other aspects of it, so to speak? I wish that more therapists would do either of those options, honestly. I think what is normal is for the therapist to, if we're lucky, recognize their countertransference and the feelings that it's bringing up for them and simply say nothing 
more often what is normal, not in terms of what is appropriate, but what is the majority behavior version of normal is the, the, ther- the therapist expresses concern. The therapist uses motivational interviewing in a way that is less than helpful because it's through a lens of, are you being abused? Is this consensual? Are you a victim here? Um, I would love, love to have more therapists either say, this is completely outside of my wheelhouse and I'm not entirely sure I'm suited to it. So let me find you somebody who is. Or have somebody recognize the feelings that it's bringing up for them, recognize the limitations of their knowledge, and then seek out resources to educate themselves in order to provide the level of care that all of our clients deserve. I mean, you would hope so, but um, yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed that the, that goes forward. But is there a conversation then to, to be had about, is there value in a therapist having their own personal kinks out there not, not not personal kinks out there but to say hey I'm um a kink positive therapist because I have personal experience in that area so obviously you don't have to go into detail but like so that you know your clients know hey this is someone that I don't have to explain from absolute scratch to they they kind of they get it that is a question that I believe you'll get multiple answers to I think it's a very contentious question I tend to fall on the side of non-disclosure. I joke to people that I train, to people that I supervise, to people that I do therapy with, that I am more than comfortable talking about every and any kind of sex under the sun except for one, the kind that I have. Um, My partner jokingly calls it the Dr. Ruth rule. Dr. Ruth has made a prolific career of being enthusiastically sex positive, and we don't know a thing about what goes on in her bedroom, and I think that's healthy and appropriate. I think particularly, and I address this a little bit in my book, particularly when we're talking about power exchange um, with dominance and submission, clinician disclosure, my personal opinion is, can, can disrupt the therapeutic relationship. I think if a clinician discloses their own sort of kink affinity, kink identity to a more submissive client, that can, especially if the clinician is more dominant, trigger a desire to serve, a desire to please um, in the client that is already there that we need to be mindful of, even without disclosure. And if a client is more dominant, that can kind of spur um, some subtle therapeutic resistance, some subtle clinical challenging, uh, where if our client knows that I'm naturally dominant, now it becomes two forces butting heads. If the client knows that I enjoy submitting, well, now why is the client going to listen to me? We, my personal experience, my personal opinion is that keeping the clinician's perspective out of it is always beneficial in therapy, but particularly when we're talking about clients with power exchange dynamics, because it is so easy to change the relationship in a way that I have yet to mull over in my mind and find a beneficial form of. That's fascinating. Yeah. And again, the, the the training comes into that as well of, you know, how do you know all that if you didn't get that training in that area and, you know, yeah, going forward. Uh, so if you if you had a, if you had your kinks and they are somewhat relevant to why you're going to therapy, how do you disclose your kinks and, and kind of, you know, start that process? Like, are there common patterns? Do some people open up straight away or does it take a little bit longer I'm sure there's many many answers since humans are human and messy and you know we have a lot going on sometimes but are are there any general patterns that you notice I think non-disclosure is more common than immediate disclosure unless somebody is saying that they are coming to therapy specifically because they found their provider on a a kink affirming provider directory, or they said, you know, I have issues related to my fetishes that I want to talk through, unless that is the presenting problem. Um, I have found it's, it's fairly rare for clients to disclose their, their BDSM sort of engagement from the get go. A part of that is like any marginalized community, they want to feel you out and make sure that you're a safe person before they go there. And another part of it is that There are many, many mental health concerns and reasons why somebody would seek therapy that have nothing to do with their sexual life. The fact that somebody is a masochist might not have anything to do with the fact that they just lost a parent and they need to do some grief work. 
the fact that somebody is going through a divorce may or may not be relevant to the nature of the power dynamic within that now ending marriage. So typically, unless it's a presenting problem, it's not disclosed. And where it's a relevant piece of information, it tends to come up after trust and rapport has been established. Which makes sense. You know, I suppose there is that fear of judgment that a, a lot of people have. So, yeah. And I wonder, going back to um, what you just said there about the kink might not be the reason why someone's going to therapy or might just be that incidental part. How does someone manage then if they're in therapy and they've, you know, like you said, they're going there for grief or whatever. And um, then their kink somehow comes into this conversation and the therapist starts focusing on that. And, you know, bringing a lot of the issues back to that. So how, you know, what what does the person in therapy do to kind of, I suppose, I don't know, like feel safer or just, you know, bring it back the power and control to themselves or, you know, to stop the focus being on just on the kink aspect as a, as a problem in the person's life rather than the reason that they're in therapy. Does that make sense? I kind of went off in a bit of a ramble on that one. <laughs> It absolutely makes sense. And, and this is a question that um, people I consult with ask frequently. You know, how do we encourage our clients to set boundaries? How do we give them a, a framework for that? And, and sometimes clients will say, you know, I'm not comfortable talking about my sex life. That's not why I'm here, but I'm not comfortable with it. So now that it's come up, how do I tell them I don't want to talk about it? because it's a topic that's uncomfortable. So one of the tips that I've given people before is to kind of pretend that your therapist is focusing on your diet, where if you've come in for grief work or if you've come in for anxiety or a phobia and something came up and now all your therapist wants to talk about is, well, what did you buy when you went grocery shopping last week? And, you know, are you eating healthy meals? And, you know, I don't know if I like that. Like maybe you should use olive oil instead of butter. Whenever they focus on something that is just a basic bodily need, that's not relevant to the fact that you're afraid of heights or that your grandmother died. It's really easy to say, you know what, that's not, that's not what I'm here for. And I would prefer not to discuss it. I want to, I want to focus on something else. I think, especially on the client side, they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking always about their sexual behaviors. And so giving them an analogy of something else, very similar, and sometimes just as odd, you know, I'm here because I'm scared of snakes and you're asking me about my relationship with my boyfriend. That's not why I'm here. And I don't want to talk about that. Is that an acceptable reason then to end the therapy or to, you know, see if you can change to another therapist if you're feeling that trust is gone because they seem to be more focused on, on the sex part of things? Absolutely. First of all, I want to make it really clear that any client has the right at any time to say, you know, this, this isn't the therapy that I need. I, I need somebody different. I, I never want anybody to feel stuck or trapped with a therapist. But particularly if they have set limits and expressed reservations and made gentle or even non-gentle, even very directive requests of their clinician, and that's not being respected and heard, leave. You are under no obligation not to find somebody else. Find somebody that will listen to you because that reciprocal listening is crucial to the therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. And, and I suppose there's something very empowering of the, in that as well, of being able to say, this isn't the right thing, especially if you're, you're, you know, if you're there for therapy and to try and understand your, your, your traumas, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to go, no, I'm going to put a boundary in and protect myself. So that's always mm -hmm. nice to hear. Um, if, if we're mixing in, going back to, you know, we, we talked a little bit about domestic violence and abuse and kink then. How do you work with someone who may be experiencing both but hasn't named it to themselves that their kink experience is half consensual and, and half not consensual? You know, they, that they've consented to some things, but maybe you're identifying some things that might come off as abusive and not abusive in a whole mm -hmm. in a way that like oh my gosh all kink is abusive but in a way that you know the difference between consensual kink and and violence so how, how can you help them identify what's going on for them without judging the the kink part of things I actually have a conference talk that I give to members of the BDSM community it's not a mental health talk it's one that you might see at Thunder in the Mountain, for example, uh, that focuses on domestic violence and sexual assault in the BDSM community and how to discern and differentiate 
between consensual kink and abusive behavior because it is possible to have abuse within kink. And that is not the same thing as saying that kink is abusive. <laughs> but things like, um, is your partner respecting your safe word? Is your partner allowing you a safe word? Um, is your partner pushing your limits where you say, I don't want that. And they say, well, just try for a minute. If you don't like it, I'll stop then. Is your partner um, restricting your communication with people that you want to be in communication with? Um, I have worked with some couples where one partner comes from an extremely abusive background and has a very enmeshed codependent family system and their dominant or their master will say, no, that's not good for you. And I forbid you to speak to them. That can, can be healthy. That can be a, a good motivator for a submissive personality to do something that might otherwise be hard for them. But if you have a good relationship with your family, if you love your friends and all of a sudden your partner is saying, no, it's an act of service to me, um, you're no longer allowed to see them because I don't like them. So if you, if you really want to submit to me, you can't be around that person. That becomes problematic. Um, many times where things like food and water and sleep are used as elements of BDSM play, where they're withheld or where they're forced, that is a time to have conversations with clients. And the, the way to have those conversations is always to level set the idea that kink itself is fine, that we are not making a statement that kink is abusive or that BDSM is inherently bad. What we're saying is we know that it's not, and that's why we're concerned about some of the things that are being described or some of the things that we're hearing about in the sessions. We start from the lens of, this is what I know healthy kink to be. And that's why I want to ask you some questions and see how you're feeling about some of the things I'm hearing that seem to fall outside of that realm of healthy kink. Yeah, I suppose it's the context and the intent that are important. Like your example there of someone who's more dominant saying you can't talk to your your, your toxic family anymore and, and have that be a, a positive thing. You know, they're trying to get you out of a bad situation, but then if someone has a toxic family and they're also then with an abuser who is trying to isolate them from friends and family anyway, mm -hmm. you know, that's a different intent and a, and a different context. So I suppose it's more pulling it apart and seeing where, where the intent part is. And w would you bring in the other partner into the therapy session in that case? Or is that, I suppose that complicates things a little bit more? So generally speaking, in my practice, I either see a couple together or I see an individual. I don't separate out my couples. Um, and I, I, I would be very adverse to doing so if I were concerned about a domestic violence situation. I actually, when I was in grad school, had a, a colleague who was in an abusive situation and her abuser was attending individual therapy and talked about a violent episode that had happened between them. And his therapist called her from her office with her abuser sitting there on speakerphone to say, he just told me about this and I need to know if you feel safe. Oh my God. And the question is there, there is no winning there. If you no. say, yes, I feel safe. Well, if you say, yes, I feel safe. You have now minimized and justified his behavior. If you say, no, I don't feel safe, you have now exposed him to legal risk and liability, and you are going to be abused when he gets home. Yeah, so oh in, situations, <laughs> in situations where we are trying to assess abuse, the last thing I would do would be to bring the partners together. I think that the, the that quickly becomes a lose-lose proposition for the, the person that is being abused. Absolutely. I'm shocked that that would even happen. Like, I'm not shocked, I suppose. I couldn't can hear it all, but like, that should just never be an option in a therapist's mind. I know over here, it probably the same over there, that a lot of therapists won't see people who are in a violent relationship because, again, there's issues of grooming the therapist and, again, the safety aspect mm -hmm. of, of, of for the victim. So um, that just seems so unethical to do something like that. Is it like... Is there a reporting process that people can go to or, you know, I, like it's scary here in Ireland that like a lot of therapists aren't regulated. So there are obviously professional bodies, mm -hmm. but and we're always promised that it will be become like a protected term. But at the moment, it's not really, which is 
it's very terrifying because people can do a lot of harm and a lot of trauma if you have a vulnerable person in your room and you're telling them certain things and um yeah is it is it more regulated over there hopefully <laughs> in the states we in the states we it, it varies from state to state much like in the eu but Generally speaking, everybody needs to have a state license. Um, typically, that varies based on whether they're a counselor, a psychologist, a social worker, what have you. Um, so the actual ethics for each professional umbrella might vary a little bit. But a client in that situation can always, always call the state licensing board and say, this happened to me and I found it to be dangerous and ethical and I wanted you to know that it happened. And complaints like those typically are investigated to some extent. It might be limited to a phone call to the person that the complaint was made about asking for an explanation. It might be a full-blown investigation depending upon the severity. But at the very least, there becomes a paper trail that something problematic occurred that was reported to the licensing board. So it reassures me a little bit, but uh, yeah, hopefully <laughs> there's more of that. So going, going back to what you said there about you do presentations at kink conferences on um, kink and abuse mm -hmm. in the community. So what are the responses like to workshops like that within, within the kink community itself? So generally they're, they're positive. I think that it, it's a sensitive subject because, again, we're already working with a marginalized community that has so many biases and misconceptions about them that I, I really have to start very much from an I am here because I support and affirm your right to have the relationships and the sexual expression that you want to have. I'm not here to tell you that what you're doing is pathological, dangerous, or abusive. Um, and generally speaking, when it's set up that way, people are willing to talk about times where they've been at a play party or they've been at a public dungeon, perhaps at a conference, and they've seen something that made them wince a little bit or made them worry a little bit, and they don't really have a mechanism for addressing that. It's not appropriate to walk up to somebody in a public event and tap them on the shoulder and say, are you okay? Are you being abused? But having conversations around, you know, what does that look like when we see it? What are some ways that we can respond? What are some things that event organizers can do to create safer spaces? How do we respond when a friend of ours or a lover of ours within the community is being abused? Um, and really having those, those dialogues, I, I have found to be very well received. That's in, yeah, because it, it's community like any other where there there might be violence there, just like any other community that's there. Um, is is there a particular kind of therapy that works well with people who have kinks? You know, there's so many different types of CBD or not CBD. Um, I'm always, CBT. Yeah, I, was, I took some CBD oil earlier and that's why it's in my head. Um, but yeah, which is not cock and ball torture, although you might talk about <laughs> cock and ball torture in your cognitive behavioral therapy um, thing, which would be very confusing, I'm sure. But is there are particular, you know, approaches within therapy that might suit a kinky person the, the better or does that come into play at all? So, I mean, I have my own biases here because I'm trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist. So, of course, I'm going to say I think CBT is beneficial. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy can be lovely, especially when we are talking about some of the scenarios you described where it's somebody that is naturally kinky, that wants that in their relationship, but that has experienced some trauma or some abuse in the past. Doing that ACT work can be really helpful in, in helping to integrate um, the experiences that they crave versus the experiences that they did not want. For my couples, I do a lot of both Gottman work and then depending upon the nature of the power dynamic with the couples that I see, I often use a lot of Terry Reel's um, relational life strategies because one of the things that I like about his model is that the therapist is not considered necessarily always neutral that the therapist can have an opinion and the therapist has a role within that that model of calling out misbehavior and speaking directly to sort of the, the problematic partner. So where I have couples that are in particularly long-term power exchange relationships where the 
authority is very clearly delineated, especially when the authority holder is potentially more problematic between the two. Using some of those RLT strategies can be really nice because it gives you um, an ethical framework to kind of have those direct conversations. You're not just the therapist speaking out of turn. You know, there's a method to the madness there. And it lets you, um, I'm going to say speak truth to power, meaning the power in the relationship, not necessarily the power in the world. That's interesting. Yeah, because there's so many different approaches within therapy itself. So it's kind of nice to try find one that works for you and I think we can be a little bit have a simplistic approach sometimes and just say oh therapy but we need to figure out mm -hmm. what kind of therapy that we're talking about as well so yes we, we looked at how kink and, and um, abuse might kind of intersect in that kind of approach but what about sexual trauma because that's something that may happen from childhood up to adult um, and both maybe but then when you throw kink into the mix then some people may be using their kink experiences to heal from their trauma and to kind of reclaim aut mm -hmm. autonomy and, and pleasure over their bodies um, and some maybe engage in a compulsion to repeat kind of thing and and a million different other responses to it so how do you pick that that kind of intersection apart in in therapy while empowering someone to heal on on their own terms so this is another area where i'm going to start by asking the client how they perceive the situation it is rare that i have found somebody that is compulsively reenacting their trauma um it does happen I would never say that it doesn't, but the vast majority of people that I have seen who are sexual abuse or sexual assault survivors engaged in kinky play typically will tell you that the two are not necessarily connected. Where I see more is what you described of using kink as a healing modality, where I have had a handful of clients that have said, you know, this wasn't a choice for me. I, I didn't, I had my power taken away. And now I really like being in situations where I absolutely know that whatever I say will be respected. The limits that I set are going to be negotiated up front. I don't need to worry about what happens once the clothes come off because we've already had the conversations. And being able to control their environment, control their setting, have a sense of authority and autonomy that they might not have had before, that is the part that can make kink really very healing for abuse survivors. I, I can see how that would. Yeah, there's, there's so much more control. I, do you need to have the words to understand why you're doing that and why you find it a healing experience? Or is it enough for people to just enjoy that experience on the cellular level without having to analyze it? I would argue that the vast majority of things that people do and enjoy, we don't necessarily have words for. We, we follow point. our instincts. <laughs> We do what feels good and we avoid what feels bad, generally speaking. I think it's always fun when I'm able to give a client the words, when I'm able to say, you know, it sounds like what you're doing is, and their face lights up and it enhances the, the sort of independence and healing that they're experiencing because now it's being recognized. Now it, they're not just doing this crazy thing. This crazy thing has a purpose and other people understand why it could be beneficial. So I think there's power in naming it, but I don't think that it needs to be named in order to have power. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, because it, it can be a very complex thing and sometimes we don't have the words to experience everything. If, if we went on the more extreme side of BDSM and you're talking about edge play here and, and you know, people who are engaged in mm -hmm you know from the outside point of view it might shock a lot of people and you might think oh that's not safe or that person is you know they may they may suffer some physical harm as a result or whatever it happens to be so is there conversations in therapy about how to keep that person safe is there a need to kind of get them to explore why they're doing it or you know just because it's more extreme maybe than my, maybe than a bit of bondage or whatever it happens to be, or is it all treated the same? So generally speaking, I try to treat things the same with a few caveats. Where I hear my clients describing behavior that I know to be high risk, particularly high risk of physical harm, 
I'll have a conversation. You know, what research have you done? What do you know about how to be safe here? What do you know about the risks here? And if they don't seem to have a lot of data and evidence and understanding of what they're doing and how to do it safely, I might say, well, why don't we look at that in a session? Why don't we look at some research or some best practices? And I'll do not necessarily direct psychoeducation myself because I cannot be the safety director of every single person's kink life. That would not be ethical or appropriate. But, you know, to look at information together, to help them find the information they need to then make an informed choice for themselves. I will absolutely do that. The other thing that I hear a lot with my supervisees, the other, the other therapists that I consult with, is concern about, you know, when do I need to intervene? When is it too extreme? When is it, when is the danger too dangerous? A lot of what we consider to be edge play, things like maybe, you know, breaking the skin, knife play, needles, breath play, these are things that can cause lasting harm and have a a risk factor with them. But the question is the same, I would look at it as if we're evaluating a mandatory reporting situation. You know, is there intention to harm themselves? Is there intention to harm another person? Is the goal to inflict serious lasting harm? We have clients in our our offices every day who perhaps engage in self-harm, who cut or who burn themselves. And we talk about the risks, we talk about alternatives, we talk about coping strategies, but at no point do we, unless they're actively suicidal, try to intervene to protect them from themselves in the way that people tend to want to do when they hear about kink play. I think that if our clients are adult and competent and are informing themselves of the risk that they're taking, that we have to trust that they are engaging in risk-aware consensual kink and let them set the standard for what is too much. Unless it reaches the point where we are concerned that they are going to harm themselves or someone else in the same way we would with a suicide assessment. But but we said that there is a, a lack of, you know, across the board training for therapists. So something for, um, you know, you and I, we might look at that and go, oh, well, that's obviously just like a kink thing. That's fine. But someone else might look at that who has no experience of kink as a therapist and might think this person is harming themselves. They're actually at risk of, you know, if it was talking about something that was maybe a little bit more extreme, like, and and then reporting on that sense, which may cause a lot of issues for the person. So how how do you find that that balance when there is no objective standard for what harm actually constitutes in that case, especially when you're dealing with consenting adults who are apparently, like you said, of sound mind um, and are, are, you know, that you trust that it is informed consent. So if someone is absolutely freaked out by kink and BDSM and, and um, you know, edge play are they they may be more likely to report whereas someone else might not so how do we standardize that a little bit I love that you asked that question because it ties directly into what I'm working on and what my next projects are for 2021 and beyond Um, I'm working on an advanced sort of sequel or next level book that would address integrating taking this idea of kink awareness, taking this general sort of 101 knowledge and really being able to integrate that into safety planning, into risk assessment, into treatment planning, into therapeutic tools and integrating our clients' power exchange and kinks and fetishes into the work that we're doing with them. Not engaging in it with them, obviously, but taking those and really looking at them as therapeutic strengths that we can leverage to help them reach their goals. So part of it is simply, you're right, the the information isn't out there. And that's one of the things that I'm working actively to address. The other is there does need to be a higher level of kink education and awareness. I think that kink and non-monogamy are not included even in most human sexuality courses, much less in general mental health and in medicine. So I think there's a lot of systemic work that needs to be done in advocacy work to even make sure that these are topics people know exist. And then from there, I think that there need to be tools and resources and educational opportunities for people to learn the basics 
for people to learn how to integrate and apply those basics and for people to really start to identify as a kink affirming practitioner that that is who they are, that is what they do, and that is how they work. But you are absolutely correct. Right now, there is no standard. And it is very much luck of the draw for our clients that we we hope they get somebody that knows enough to do more good than harm. Yeah, which is a bit scary for for a lot of people, especially if they're vulnerable coming into therapy. Are there any red flags that patients uh, or clients, I suppose we should say, um, should look out for if they do disclose and their their therapist either, like you said earlier, they might not say anything. But if they were to say something else or um, whatever they happen to say, are there red flags that they can kind of go, oh, you know what, this this person may not be as, as educated in this area as I'd like, or it might be a negative thing if I continue to disclose more of, of my sex life here. The, the first one that comes to mind, primarily because of the sort of topics and scenarios we've been discussing, is when some, a client discloses their, their kink affinity, their relationship structure, and they notice that their clinician is now all of a sudden looking at them from sort of a survivor advocacy or a crisis intervention mindset. When every topic comes back to their sex life, much like I said, you know, if I'm here for a phobia, I don't want to talk about what I bought at the grocery store. If I'm here to talk about grief, I don't want to talk about my boyfriend. So when they notice it becoming a theme for the therapist in a way that it is not a theme for themselves, that is 100% a red flag. When the therapist is unwilling to take them at their word in terms of consent and safety. Now, I say that, again, with a caveat, because my role as the therapist is to ask good questions, is to um, make sure that we're looking at a situation or a scenario from all different angles. But there's a difference between let's look at this comprehensively and no, I've told you repeatedly that I am happy and content and this is not a factor for me. Why do you keep asking? So where they are finding that they don't feel heard by their therapist or they don't feel trusted by their therapist to evaluate their own sense of safety, that's huge. And then the last one is where they hear judgmental language and it can be subtle. Microaggressions are a thing even for the kink community but where they hear a, a change in tone, where they start to talk about paraphilias and sadism and masochism in a very clinical sense, where um, it's when they feel judged, when they feel that their disclosures are being met negatively. That to me is the most basic red flag. And that would be true whether it's sexuality or not. If I'm talking to you about the next tattoo I want to get and you as my therapist are shaming me and making me feel bad about it. That's, that's a red flag there. I think everybody deserves to be heard and trusted and believed by their therapist. That doesn't mean that they don't get asked questions, but their answers should be trusted and, be and believed and where they don't feel those three things. I, I think those are red flags. And conversely, then on the other side, the, the green flags then are like you're saying, if you're feeling listened to, if it feels that, that safe supportive environment and where it's not brought up in, in every single session of like tell me more about how you like to get spanked when you're there to talk about your mom passing away or something like that so yeah are there any more green flags yeah. for me mm -hmm. Sorry. green flags for me are recognizing that it's a part of your day-to-day -day life that it's not about how do you like to get spanked it's about how do you and your partner communicate how do you make decisions together um, using that information, asking those questions and being enthusiastically supportive of the way that you structure your life and your relationships. That's the green flag for me. And that just seems to be a nice building block of consent and compassion, like the healthy parts of every therapy, therapeutic relationship, I suppose. So um, I, I just think this is fascinating because, again, like you said, there shouldn't be this massive gap there. And I think we do have a long way to go when we're looking at, quote unquote, alternative sexualities, which aren't really the alternative because there's a lot more people into a lot more weird and wonderful stuff than we imagine that are out there in the world. So that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm glad that your your book is is you know, filling in that gap a little bit for the therapist. That would be amazing. Would you write one in the future? 
uh, based on you know what we were talking about tonight or for the kinky person going to the therapist so i wrote the leather couch hoping that it would be accessible to both sides of the office i tried to be user-friendly and easy to understand something that a lay reader or a client could leverage and find some value in my next project unfortunately will not be that it's very much focused on amplifying the clinical skills of the provider but I could absolutely see in the future taking on another project focusing on mental health from the client side, the kinky client side. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled and you might come back on the podcast then again when that when that comes out. So we'll mark you in for the next couple of years. We'll get you going. I um, love it. Brilliant. Listen, Stephanie, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. I, th- I just think it's nice to have these conversations that we don't normally hear and we don't, you know, get to kind of dive into all the time. So thank you for providing that space and that knowledge. It's really, you know, an absolutely fascinating area. Um, where can people pick up your book and where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation? My book is available on Amazon through Rutledge directly if you're in the UK. Most independent sellers, you can get it through their websites. My website is bounditogethercounseling.com. Anybody that wants to connect with me, whether it's to discuss a clinical issue or just because you find the subject fascinating and want to learn more about it, can reach me through the contact me page there. Brilliant. And that Stephanie's book is The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. And it has a gorgeous cover as well on it. It's just a lovely, arty kind of cover. So well done on that aspect. Um, brilliant. Listen, thank you all so much to my listeners. As always, you know, if, if you're interested in any, you know, the topics that we looked at tonight, you can contact Stephanie. You can drop me a DM or social media on Twitter and Instagram is Glow West Podcast. Um, like I said at the start of the hour, if you really want to support us via Patreon, that's great. And that's um, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack or pop over to Apple and write a review and it does help get the word out about the podcast. And I will chat to you next week.